Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Kate Woda. I'm pleased today to share a panel session from the 2019 IO Combinations 360 event about new opportunities for cell therapy combinations. The discussion was moderated by Dr. Michael Kalos, formerly of Janssen Oncology, and included Dr. Sharon Benzino of Adaptive Biotechnologies, the FDA's Dr. Chauhan Fan, Dr. Bruce Levine from the University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Mark Stewart from Friends of Cancer Research, and Dr. Bob Valamere of Fate Therapeutics. Enjoy the podcast. So welcome to the panel on new combination opportunities for cell therapy combinations. Um, we heard a lot today about next generation cell therapy and a lot about combinations. So uh, what we're going to do here today is have a 45-minute panel discussion on the topic. And I suggested to the panelists a, about a 30-minute uh, discussion of select topics and then opening up to the audience. So this is audience participation. So uh, for about 10 minutes or more or less, We'll have uh, questions from the audience on the topics that were brought up or other topics. So, so uh, I'd ask the audience to restrict your questions to when we're done with a 30-minute session. Um, so then save your questions for the end, if you will. So as a setup, we're going to focus on, on four topics that attempt to precipitate a discussion of the science, the clinical ap uh, application, and the regulatory issues associated with this new space of combinations in cell therapy. Um, it's, a, it's a rapidly advancing and uh, complex space. There's novel challenges associated with this space, so I'm hoping that the, the, the discussion enables us to get some, some threads that we can follow on. So I'd like to start out with the panelists, if I can ask you folks to, uh, to briefly tell us who you are, where you are, uh, and why you're here, that is, what is your angle on cell therapies and combinations, very briefly. So we can start out perhaps with Bob here. Oh, sure. Uh, Microphone. Thanks. Um, I'm Bob Valimer. I'm Chief Development Officer for Fate Therapeutics. At Fate, um, we use induced pluripotent stem cells to create engineered master cell banks and utilize those master cell banks to now have a renewable source for CAR T and CAR and K therapy. And so it's a paradigm shift that's similar to CHO cells and how CHO cells are used to create monoclonal antibodies. Uh, hi, everybody. I'm Xiaohong Fan. Um, I like this WWW, it's like 360. So who I am, I answered. And where I have been, what I'm doing. Uh, I'm an oncologist and a hematologist, working as a medical officer at FDA, particularly at the Center of Biologics. And I have been there for 14 years. Before, I've been the National Cancer Institute. And uh, why I'm here, I mentioned about yesterday. Number one, I come to as a panelist to discuss. Number two, I'm here to listen to you. I want to find out what's challenges and what's the interesting issues you have while interacting with the FDA, what would you like FDA to do to better to regulate um, this uh, field and to help us go, uh, move forward? Hi, thanks for the opportunity to be here. My name is Mark Stewart. I'm VP of Science Policy at Friends of Cancer Research. Um, we're a small advocacy organization in Washington, uh, D.C., and 
Um, a lot of uh, the activities that we do kind of intersect this area of policy and science and advocacy, and we have a number of ongoing initiatives that um, tie into this discussion of combinations. And really, I think what our organization helps facilitate is discussions among stakeholders that might not often interact with each other and really bringing key folks to um, and involving FDA in discussions that um, really help ensure that regulations that are in place and frameworks that are there help facilitate the science and help ensure that new treatments are able to get to patients safely and quickly. And so we have a number of activities ongoing right now that actually involve a number of the folks in this room that I can speak about later in this panel discussion. Hi, everybody. Sharon Benzino. Again, I'll keep it brief since I just spoke. Um, with Adaptive Biotechnologies, uh, where we're an immune medicine company that develops diagnostics and therapeutics. And uh, in therapeutics, our first foray is in cell therapy. Um, Bruce Levine. And uh, where I am is about 30 blocks from this spot. Uh, and for... 23 years, I directed the manufacturing facility at the University of Pennsylvania that has conducted a series of first-in-human cell therapy clinical trials. I am a co-founder of Timidity, a spin-out of the University of Pennsylvania, developing engineered T-cell therapies, and president-elect of the International Society for Cell and Gene Therapy. That's fantastic. So, uh, as you can tell, in August, uh, Augusta, panel participation here. So, the first... The first question that I'd pose to the panel speaks to the science, right? We talked about the complexity of the space. Um, there's a number of the, the substrate that we're working with. On the one side, it's the cells, right? Most of us have spent most of our time studying alpha-beta T cells. We heard an NCASA talk today. The field is dramatically expanding, expanding autologous, allogeneic, alpha-beta, gamma-delta, iPSCs, NKs, macrophage, others. How does this expanding universe of cell types influence how we should be thinking about combinations? Are there particular combinations that make sense for cell types? Is there commonality? Do we have to figure it out all for each cell type? How do we go about this in the preclinical and then clinical space? So I'll start out, let's start out with Bruce, and we'll get your thoughts on that topic, and then we'll move on to Bob for additional questions. Uh, well, so I think you saw in the previous talk from Sharon a combination of uh, gating, combinatorial analysis, parallel processing. Uh, and when you think of the number of variables, just of CAR T cells and then NK cells, and you factor that in, you may have 10 to the 7th or 10 to the 8th or 10 to the 9th combinations. Impossible to test them all. Uh, and that's where I think these in parallel clinical trials going on by different groups in different settings with different approaches all have a beneficial effect of alerting us to a signal. It's impossible for everyone to test everything. We have to work on this in parallel. Now, um, I'll, I'll say... Also, uh, and, and perhaps our 
FDA representative can add on to this later, uh, and, and Mark as well, at the meeting that uh, we had with the Friends of Cancer Research, uh, which you participated in Michael May 17th, uh, we have been discussing with the FDA on ways to accelerate innovation, understanding that there are many parts of this complex biologic to change, uh, to improve, many possible combinations. So can we look at the regulations and guidances as they are, and is there something that can be amended that should be amended to allow flexibility in the development of these therapies, uh, let's take on the manufacturing end, perhaps on the design of clinical trials, whether they be basket trials uh, or parent-child INDs. Uh, and uh, uh, that's another aspect to this beyond the technological parallel processing. Thank you, Bruce. Now, now Bob, your, your company focuses on iPSC technology, and it's, it's really exciting. You guys are able to make different types of immune cells from iPSCs. I'm interested in your thoughts about how you guys think about that space and, and are what, what you see from the current, from the NK trials, from the alpha beta trials, are they paradigms for you or do you think there's biology there that's, that makes you think about combinations differently? Uh, that's a great point. I think transplant tells us that you need to reconstitute the immune system. Folks are showing us that CD4s are just as important as CD8s when it comes to car development. Um, Cardi has shown really nicely this morning, if you make NK, NK cells smarter, they're more effective. And so I think the way we're looking at it is that you need multiple immune cells to help fight cancer. Cancer is always evolving. You can't have a one-trick pony to come in. And so from our perspective, it's how do you make cells smarter, but how do you also leverage what biology has done and create a kind of a repertoire of different cells that can, in it, from different approaches, as Bruce also mentioned, combat cancers, ever-evolving approach to getting away from therapy. Right. And, and, and maybe another, then the way this is contrived is I pick on a couple of people and then I say, anybody have anything else to say? So from the panelists, right? So the panelists, anything else to add to this topic? The, the substrate, the cells, the, 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 the types of modifications? Uh, maybe I had some comments regarding Bruce's uh, question. Uh, you didn't tell me when we pre-run, you have those questions, how do I prepare better? But anyway, you mentioned about this, uh, we are at this very exciting time and evolving for them rapidly in terms of science. And regulatory-wise, we are also evolving. Really, we are very flexible and receptive. Um, I, maybe I give a very quick a short story about the, uh, maybe FDA, that I got the impression that two years ago I was at uh, uh, SITC meeting, and at the end of the meeting, and there's a session, one of the professor from surgical oncology, and he presented wonderful data. And because of a time stream, I didn't get a chance to ask questions. So I followed him after his presentation, and went outside to ask questions, I introduced myself, I'm from FDA. Right away, he took it back, he said, did I do anything wrong? I, and then I was shocked too. I said, no, no, not at all, because I was so impressed with the data I wanted to follow up to learn from them. But anyway, so I'm sorry for that. But anyway, so come for this. And in terms of the, um, currently we have, uh, we are also evolving to, to try to modernize our trial design. There's multiple guidance uh, already there. Trial design to, to um, fit into current arena. For example, we have, uh, adaptive design, we have 
enrichment design. We have also com complex innovative design. So as long as the science there, justification there, we are adapting. Thank you for that. You know, the, the topic of the regulatory topic, let's touch on it further a little bit later. It's a really, really important one, and uh, the conversation that Bruce alluded to with that Friends of Cancer Research Mediated, I think, was a very important one for the field. So I'll ask Mark and, and Xiaohong to speak on it additionally later. Um, but if we think about uh, the, the notion that you can take discord dif dis different cell types and in parallel path, develop them clinically to see who works better is one that scientifically is compelling, right? We'll see about the regulatory implications of that. Um, let me move to the second topic, unless Mark and Sharon have something compelling to say on this one. Uh, and the second, the first one we talk about the substrate, the cells, the, 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 the types of modifications. For the second topic, I'd like to touch on the technological innovations, right? In, in the old days, combination, and you saw that in my presentation, the combinations today, drug A plus drug B, you add them together, and that's what we had, right? Technology has evolved today so that we can think about combinations in unprecedented ways, right? We can make bispecific molecules. We can genetically engineer in or out things from cells. We can, uh, uh, we can um, introduce mRNA into cells and have it expressed. So how should, we thinking, how should we be thinking as a community about these tools in, in our search to develop better combination approaches? So I'll start on this one. Bob, let's kick it off with you on this one. Sure. I mean, the best example is um, when CD3 Zeta alone did not work in a car, and CD28 or 41BB just changed the game for car therapy. And so the way we look at it, and I think m many people here also, it's you, get, you want the cell to do many things. And so, you know, you're hearing now about armored cars where it's not just 28 Zeta, it's also secretion of IL-12, for example. You're hearing about third generation cars where 41BBL is being um, uh, expressed on the side. So you have 28 Zeta doing its job, but 41BBL helping persistence and in a cis and trans manner. And so, and, and, and Kati's data about IL-15 as well. And so I think the approach is that you're gonna, you want to put many things into a cell to, again, combat the evolution of, of the tumor um, escape. And so um, I think that's where we're going to be headed, is how can you put many things into a cell so that you can leverage the ability of an effector cell to do more? Bruce, are there technologies that particularly excite you in this regard? Well, a whole lot of them, but uh, let me pick up and... and just address strategy of evaluating some of yeah. these new technologies. And something maybe I uh, would like to have put in but did not have time to expand in is the 4X modified T cell, where we're knocking out T cell receptor alpha, beta, PD-1, and putting it in NYE cell. That's two to the four, right? That's 16 possible populations. So the technology behind that product, when you infuse it, there are 16 possible ways it could go, right? Depending on your hypothesis. So the hypothesis is that the cell that has the TSA receptor knocked out twice, knocked out PD-1 and NYE so in it, will be the one that expands. But you could take that further. You could examine a CD3 
28 and a CD341BB. Look at competitive repopulation there. You could add on a TGF-beta-dominant negative receptor. You could have with and without IL-15. So that allows you, not only within the same trial, but within the same patient, to look at the additive value of some of these technologies. So, so you're leveraging the inefficiencies of each one of those processes so that your end product is a, is a heterogeneous product, right, and, and which is evaluated in patients. I think that's a pretty interesting way of, of, uh, of doing, of doing a, a competitive study, right? I, I, I'd be curious to hear what, what FDA might, might think about that. They've already thought about it, and the study is open, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, but that, but uh, any, any comments on your side, Shahan? Um, we also didn't prepare you for this question. <laughs> uh, depend on actually, um, I think we look at uh, the study because it always comes a new one, the novel one, the new one. And the, when you have a preclinical data, or even and if you don't have preclinical data, you come up and start the the, the, the new. Um, the first the in human and study with a different uh, combination, uh, a different target. I think usually what we do first is with a, that's a safety number one. So we just want you, uh, you can justify with the preclinical information, or you can use, in my opinion, you can always take this back. Uh, you slowly uh, to do uh, with the <coughs> right uh, patient population, select them correctly or um, carefully, well informed the patient, and then you slowly um, uh, to to enroll the patient. Uh, take a longer time to evaluate uh, the safety information. We get a certain safety information, then we are more comfortable for you to go ahead. The more that's the trick. Thank you. Sharon, Mark, any, anything exciting about technologies that will help us develop novel ways of studying combinations? I know it's not in either of your immediate wheelhouse, but here's an opportunity to... I think it's thematic with what, you know, frankly, you, met, you mentioned and was discussed even yesterday. Um, it's sort of how can you hone in on the biology that is a function of the given therapy, and especially when we go into multi-targeting, whether it's in, embedded in the actual, we talked about biospecifics, but also your car formats that are evolving, um, as well as combinations traditionally A plus B. So I think, um, I think being able to um, not only assess the safety, but also the biology, that those things are actually active uh, in, in, in an earlier fashion, um, is, is going to be integral to, to the success of these, these platforms. I was particularly intrigued also when you mentioned the oncolytic virus with a car, with a bite. Yeah. You know, it, it adds complexities that I think, um, while exciting these technologies, we, we just also need the tools to be able to properly track and monitor efficacy. Shahang, okay. you have? Uh, maybe I have a quick add-on, just, uh, just for in terms of... Uh, if you do combination at a multiple uh, agent, you have to keep in mind, at the beginning, you say, well, that's a safety, so it's all right. But the, the, the ultimate goal, you want to say whether there's treatment regimen or there's a combination uh, is successful, is effective. Then you have to 
think about how to isolate the individual effect from the different component. That's when you do for regulatory consideration for approval. We do need that information. But how to design that study? And so there are just more scenarios. I probably can go to details another time. Maybe I should have FDA 360 another time. An FDA 360. There's an offer here on the table. Uh, let me let me switch to the to the third topic here, which is um, its output. Yesterday we heard a lot about big data and how we can integrate, collect, and analyze and integrate big data. I, I'm wondering about your thoughts about the types of data that we'd need specifically to collect about cell therapy combinations. Thinking about solid tumors, but also liquid tumors, right? What sort of strategies and collect a lot of, beyond collect a lot of samples. Um, what sort of platforms, are there innovative ways of looking at the outputs that might help us understand this space um, a little bit better? And I'll share and I'll start, start picking, on, picking up on you there. Yeah, I think, I think for cellular therapies, there's the opportunity to uh, really brainstorm, but ultimately it's two categories. The first um, that we've also talked a lot about is um, upfront target selectivity and expression especially as we think of solid tumors and heterogeneity. Um, are the T cells actually infiltrating the tumor, whether it's CARs or TCRs? Um, and then as we talked about in terms of the actual tumor response and immunosuppressive nature of the tumor microenvironment. And so that's, I guess, in the bucket of more biology. But I think, um, again, as you said, these are living drugs. Uh, and so more, more sort of a macro level around the product itself and its quality and manufacturing, the process, its continuous improvements, incremental as they are, um, and then linking that to is that working in the tumor. So I think uh, those two categories combine into what we need to think about is a multidimensional rich yeah. data set to be able to uh, bring together that, uh, again, aren't necessarily are rate limiting because the samples are limited, but um, you know, thinking through sort of the different strategic components of the product itself and the biology would be uh, critical. And also being able to, as I mentioned earlier, uh, track that over time yeah. in a hierarchical strategic method. You know, I'll note that you know there's there's been a couple of publications from the Penn Group over the last couple of years that on single patients provided some pretty remarkable insights that were unanticipated, right? Simon Lacey here in the audience was on those, as was Bruce. One was that you had this splicing out of the CD19 antibody epitope. Wow, right? Who would have thought? CD19 was still in the service, the epitope was spliced out. And then a report from Marco Ruella, the first author from Penn, where a CAR-T was expressed on a B cell a car was expressed on a B cell, and that car blocked the, bi the CD19 epitope. So the B cell was uh, became a, a resistant, to, a malignant B cell, right? So I think there's something to be said for even doing simple analyses in a very rigorous way as an output of these trials. Bruce, I wonder if you have any additional uh, tricks up your pen sleeve about stuff that you reveal to us, or even more broadly, how you got, how you think about that space. Yeah, we, we do, but uh, uh, look, the key there is having a team and access to a team with multiple expertise. Um, in this world of translational cell and gene therapies, there's no one group, no one department that can do it all. And we have infrastructure within the Center for Cellular Immunotherapies, but we have colleagues at CHOP 
uh, Dave Barrett uh, and his lab who did some of the CD19 splicing work. We have colleagues in the Department of Microbiology, Fred Bushman, who did the integration analysis and probably the best in the world at that. So the environment that we have allows us to learn the most possible uh, from any given patient. And I think that is a field accelerator. It's not just the numbers of patients that you treat. It's the amount of information that you get from every patient yeah. that you treat. Uh, and going back to how much data you collect, you try and collect uh, as much as possible, but at some point you've got to separate the signal uh, from the noise, and yeah. there are ways to do that. And the, and the last point I'll say is, uh, with very large numbers, you can do statistics and get a p-value that is less than 0.05, but that doesn't mean that what you have is actionable. Yeah. If we know that clinical response correlates with a certain cell type, it may not always. And then do you set a limit on cells that you collect from a patient or cells that you infuse to a patient based on that limit when there are patients that fall below or above the line that still it's possible for them to have a complete response. So there are multiple factors that go into a clinical response. It's not only the cell intrinsic factors. There are tumor intrinsic factors and treatment uh, intrinsic factors as well. I think, and I'll, and I'll note, Bruce, just to further the discussion a little bit, the two examples that I brought up and, and uh, the third one that you brought up, the TED2 story, those, each of those was enabled not by doing everything, right? But it was enabled by making sure that you had the right kind of material at hand so that you, you could retrospectively go in and ask those questions, right? So that's oftentimes underappreciated, having the right type of material at hand to do these studies. So, uh, Any other comment? Bob, would you like yeah, to add? Maybe I could comment on, on that from a preclinical modeling. I think really focusing on what you have is very important. For example, how Michelle Satterline showed trichocytosis. You, know, mm -hmm. you could have just if you weren't paying attention, you just walked right over that. But now he shows that potentially two different cars for the same antigen can be valuable as well. And so I think clinical modeling, preclinical modeling, to this day, there are very few surrogate markers preclinically that yeah. tell you how, what the outcome is going to be. So that's going to be very critical as well. Yeah. Mark? I think also in terms of collecting data that can help better characterize these these. Um, individual components in these combinations. I think also looking at the data that can be collected on these patient populations, often the patients that will be receiving these combinations have failed multiple other lines of therapy. So um, better understanding why it is those patients aren't responding to these single agent therapies so you can identify them earlier on through potentially biomarkers um, so you can better separate patients that would um, better respond to monotherapy versus those that should go straight to a, a combination therapy, I think, is also important. Very good. So uh, we have about 20 minutes left. We'll leave some time for questions, as we said. I'd like to sort of shift the, the panel to the last of the four topics, which is um, the regulatory framework about how we do about it. And Bruce and, and Shahong, we touched on this already, but um, how should we be thinking uh, and expanding on what we said about the regulatory framework for the clinical evaluation of, of novel combinations, right, in the context of the clinical design, in the context of the regulatory agencies, 
Um, and, and also in, con in the context of the institutional boards, a topic that came up at the Friend of Cancer Research, and Mark, I'll ask you to expand on that specifically, is that um, part of it is, part of the, the, the inability to be innovative, if you will, is, is dealing with the, the institutional boards and their, their aversion to being innovative because it introduces some risk to the process, right? So I don't want to focus on the, uh, on the IBs, but, but the general topic about the regulatory framework. Mark, Mark, maybe you can kick it off and give us a summary of the Friends of Cancer initiative and then we can take it from there. Sure. Um, so it's been alluded to, so we hosted a meeting back in May on the 17th um, that initiated from some earlier conversations in, in January where it brought together a few key stakeholders to identify some key issues that um, could help, uh, if addressed, could help kind of expedite the development and better um, uh, expedite the development of these cell therapies. And um, what that led to was a white paper that's on our website that identified some opportunities around um, reducing the regulatory um, burden on sponsors and the FDA in terms of having to file potentially multiple INDs. Um, and so we put forth this concept of a parent-child IND where you could have multiple constructs that fall under a, a single IND. Um, in addition, there were notable manufacturing challenges that were mentioned, and um, oftentimes, uh, you know, Michael had mentioned this, that um, institutions are risk-averse sometimes, and while FDA certainly encourages flexibility and allows for flexibility here, um, it's been noted that maybe since it's not specifically stated in guidance that people tend to go the, the full length in terms of having to develop um, full GMP uh, material, and so we put forth some concepts around fit-for-purpose reagents that um, might be more suited for these early phase first-in-human studies that then once you identify what your lead candidate is that you'd like to put forth through more rigor rigorous clinical trials that at that point you would go through um, the full um, manufacturing requirements. Um, I think that's kind of the gist of it. Thank you. Shahang, would you like to add? How many minutes do I have? <laughs> <laughs> However many you need. It's important to hear from FDA on this issue in particular, always. <laughs> oh, thank you. I really appreciate it, getting a chance to come to this meeting. It's very well run, very well organized, the speakers and also the audience. It's fantastic. Uh, thank you for allowing me here. Um, so touch upon this. I got lots of uh, ideas. Actually, I'm going to bring back. There are some ideas of a public workshop and um, um, symposium internally we discuss and guidance we needed to put forward. But anyway, so touch upon this combination uh, issues. Uh, number one, talk about the study design. We are also trying to modernize the, what we need to feed, uh, what uh, what's should be done. So I mentioned about the, the different uh, child designs you can consider. And um, you also need to consider, depends on what agent you are investigating, what kind of combination, whether it's both the investigational or three investigational, or you have someone already, agent already with a proven the labeling indication or non-indication. So it depends on those nuances. You may consider the study design, either single arm or randomized, you need to do that, or as add-on, or it depends on how much you know of your um, 
individual component of efficacy for the indicated population. That's for study design. And then talk about, the, we will focus on the patient population, and you carefully think about that, who they will potentially benefit based on what you have known before the science. Then, uh, so carefully select those patients. If you need to develop specific assay to uh, narrow down your patient population, you also need to consider actually to have this combination with the um, development of assay wise in a parallel then um, for the patient population. And you can also have narrowed down, because we have approved recently that two of the um, agent pembrolizumab and also is the latrectinib based on the agnostic, uh, uh, tissue agnostic, because you don't have to know that the the location of the tumor, but based on the genetic markers that you treat, as long as that's working, there's always the way to get it to the, uh, the last stage or follow. Now, I wanted to mention maybe um, during the study, then you could, or, or study design, one of the important things is the end point. End point. Depends on what you think, uh, your hypothesis. You may carefully think about the, the, your studies and combine together. For example, if you single arm study, just then don't do time to event end point because that's very difficult to interpret. Time to event for single arm study, um, basically uh, inter non not interpretable. So you would do the response rate because those are the markers, those are the you can indic indication of direct anti-tumor effect. So we can, be that we can evaluate the effects. Then um, time to event, you have a randomized study, you could do that. Then during the assessment, you also think about uh, what assessment you need. We have a resist, we have, you have um, immune-related resist. Uh, so look at you, at this point, we haven't really approved any agent based on the immune related RES resist. However, it's in the progress. We, in the process, we are thinking, try to collect more data. We just need to be convinced. I think based on the nature of a regulator, we're just always skeptical. But in the meantime, we are behind the frontier, the cutting edge, the science of discovery. So the, in terms of assessment, you, I think the better to collect the more data, the more the better, and you can always evaluate to see which one um, uh, worked or, or to compare with what we have before. So as a learning point as well. The last one maybe I just mentioned um, uh, in terms of interpretation, uh, that's also related to assessment. For example, you may use the investigator assessment results to present your data, however, depends on the disease, and it depends on your study site and the patient population may benefit from independent uh, assessment, I mean, review committee. That will help you. Because uh, sometimes uh, I, I have seen some of the studies, uh, um, if you care for the patient population mentioned about it, if you do response rate, for example, you say, wow, we have 50% response. But you, know, you look carefully, carefully that some patients actually they have very low 
very low tumor burden at the beginning. And then you come to us, well, I look at the details, well, it's really difficult to interpret it. So those, those issues needed to be vetted out during the um, development. The bottom line is, I think, a take-home message is that, uh, I should say, um, during your drug development stage, at any stage, beginning, middle, or close to the finish line, please engage us, educate us, um, or don't, it's off record, or, <laughs> or interact with us, because that way we will work with you together to advance the drug development and move the field forward. That's our mission. I think uh, you may, what do you call it? Uh, you may go fast and far alone, but together with us, we can possibly go faster and further. Wow, that's something to look forward to, right? <laughs> Bruce, any additional thoughts? Thank you, Shahan. Any additional short thoughts on the topic? Yeah, it's hard to follow the FDA uh, like that. Uh, I'll just add that uh, uh, they have been very collaborative and uh, of great assistance over the years in developing our, our therapies. Um, and uh, I want to leave uh, time for uh, yeah. some discussion, but I'll, I'll just... Why don't I wind up this way? Think about uh, the three stages of technology advance, right? Uh, the first stage is people will tell you it's impossible. Uh, the second stage, they'll say it may be possible, but it's too difficult or not worth doing. And then the third stage is they'll say, I knew it was a good idea all along. So I think we're in that phase and we're getting into the complexity phase where we're cycling back and people look at these combinations and they say, oh, it's too difficult, it's, it's not worth doing. But we'll get there and we'll get there working together. Wonderful. Bob, we'll leave any questions about regulatory issues and IPSCs uh, for another topic. I'd love to hear about that also. So uh, we have about eight minutes. Uh, this is the audience participation part. So don't make me pick out some people here. So please, please come to the, I'm, I'm hoping you found some of what you heard here to be, to be intriguing and interesting and maybe compelling and maybe even something you want to counter. So please, and I think I saw David Shear head up there. So David. I, I owe you for my uh, roundtable discussion. Actually, you know, it's interesting listening to this discussion, following up on Shahang's comments here. This question is primarily for Bruce and Bob. Bruce, I like the idea of the internally person-controlled study. You know, you have 16 different possibilities, which one's going to win out. But as we're talking about cell therapy combinations, uh, how do we compare what works best? In the solid tumor world and the PDXs, uh, I look at it and I say, okay, you know, if I, I'm going to measure tumor mutation burden just so I can compare it to prior trials to get some idea. How do you approach this space and thinking of your, especially the IPCs and all your new vectors of comparing it to former trials and where do you figure out what's best? Yeah, so I, I uh, meant to say that the internal control is, is useful in comparing things that are quite similar. When you have something uh, that's different, as I showed you the design of our CD1922 trial, there are cohorts and their cohorts in the 19 BCMA trial. 
uh, and the um, combination of the um, uh, oncolytic virus and the bispecific, that's preclinical only. That's not moving to a, a clinical trial yet. Uh, but just closing the loop on the 16 different combinations, uh, we would love if we had 100% uh, disruption efficiency and 100% transduction, but we don't. Uh, and we know that we're infusing cells that contain a mix of these populations, and it's different for each patient. We're not customizing it. Uh, what I meant to use that as an illustration of is where we have a uh, less than 100% pure product, those characteristics also allow us to look at how those populations can change over time and give us some added information. Right. Any other questions from the audience? Any other comments, input? Maybe I can Bob, comment yeah, while uh, somebody's coming up to, um, for the next question. I think this is a very interesting question. I mean, we're standing on the shoulders of giants at Penn, MSK, and MD Anderson, but how do you preclinically know you have a better product? So we make clonal products. We don't have the versatility of a heterogeneous product. We have potentially an advantage there. Once you got it, you're gonna have a great product. And so we're so, uh, we're so dependent on preclinical models. And you know, you talk about MSK stress test. Can you put 50,000 T cells and clear the tumor? You talk about car response, car fitness. So I think as a community, we got to figure out what are some of the sur surrogate markers that preclinically when the needle moves, we all agree, I think you have a, a good thing there. So we're working on that everyday preclinical models, surrogate markers of clinical outcome. Mark, you had a comment? Well, not related to this, but if, there's, if there are no more questions, I just wanted to build off of a, f a few comments um, to a different, an, another perspective um, to the, the comments from FDA. You know, I think there are some real um, practical challenges that also need to be considered from the patient perspective. Um, while there are certainly unique scientific challenges and statistical considerations for these, for these trials, when you're looking at these combinations, as I had mentioned, these patients have likely failed multiple lines of therapies, and um, and oftentimes these days that could be a, a single agent um, IO. And if you're looking at an IO IO combination here, there's some um, challenges in terms of um, randomizations that need to be considered. Is it appropriate to randomize these patients to a single agent control arm if they've previously failed an IO agent and do we know that if a patient failed a, a one PD-1 that they'd fail another PD-1 or that they'd fail another PDL one And so I think, you know, it, it, it just adds credence to further think about these innovative trial designs and the opportunities to incorporate past clinical trial data or real-world data in terms of um, still meeting the criteria of um, understanding the contribution of these individual components um, while maintaining, I think, equipoise and, and, and creating a trial that patients actually want to be on. Absolutely. I really I enjoy this and appreciate your perspectives there. I, um, I absolutely agree with you, and especially uh, for the patient in terms of individually, and we can take care of that by individual patient need. 
Uh, number one thing is we conducted this clinical study. First of all, we have to do no harm. And that's our job at the beginning, do no harm. And after that, uh, we, we expect there is uh, efficacy or when you are doing the drug development stage, which study design you need to fulfill the regulatory requirement for your marketing uh, license. So that can involve some uh, randomized study, but that's not necessarily you not necessarily have to fail, a patient have to fail one, two, three lines of therapy. No, they're all individually you can put into consideration. And especially for randomized study I mentioned about the combination is that when you have a product single, a single agent, you say there's no effect. The only effect is combined with another agent with the known efficacy. So in that case, you better do a randomized study as add-on to demonstrate that it's true, you add it together, have more effect. Uh, I may be quick to say there's a practical approach is that I really want to give you this information out is that please, no matter how much data you have, how little you have, please come to interact with the FDA request in pre-IND meeting or in the middle IND meeting, end of phase one, end of phase two, pre-phase three, it's free. And, and you come actually, no matter what, we still have questions. So to help to shorten the time sometimes, I just interact with us. Thank you. I think that's a perfect way to end this panel discussion. So thank you all for your input and your, and your comments. I hope you enjoyed that podcast from the 2019 IO Combinations 360 conference. For more information, visit iocombinations360.com.